You are now tuned in to the Bring in the Heat podcast. In this episode, a thermal remediation industry first. Remediation under active railroad tracks. And now, it's time for your host, Gorm Heron, CTO of TRS Group, to bring the heat. We are going to hear about a site where there was TCE and dichlorobenzene in in tight soils and in, in the sand layer, and that we were, were treated um, under railroad tracks. And you're going to see a site where 1,700 pounds of mass came out. It was heated to 106 degrees Celsius on average, so boiling, steaming conditions. Um, and and you're going to wonder, you know, can you do that safely without without subsidence, without movement of tracks? So just to set the stage real quick, from a technical standpoint, what can happen? Uh, the two main things that you're nervous about when you uh, <clears throat> when you're when you're doing thermal treatment and you don't want any movement, um, one is oxidation of organic materials. It could be a peat layer, for instance, um, that get exposed to oxygen and vacuum and, and high temperature, you can see shrinkage of peat layers. You can also see some loss of organic mass that's that's coating uh, quartz grain, for instance. So that could be an issue. The other thing is clays. Um, there are swelling type clays like smectite, montmorillonite. If you change the water content, they may actually change their volume. So those two things basically are the things we, we worry about. Um, that could lead to some some change in volume um, down below below the ground. <clears throat> but let's get into the the site in question. I'm going to ask you, Ken, to talk about the the overall Brandywine site. Um, I know it was a combined remedy, and you had you know a lot of years of managing this site, and would love to hear from you overall how how this site was was attacked. Um. Yeah, the site had coupled remedies before. Coupled remedies, I think, was, was even a thing. Um, I, I know it is a thing now. So just a little bit about the site. Um, it's, a, it's a former storage area for excess property uh, from DOD facilities in, in the DC area. So throughout its history, spills, leaks, et cetera, basically yielded a, a TCE plume to the tune of 21 acres that, that extended from a corner of the site under railroad tracks, under a public road into a residential area. Um, there was also a smaller co-located 1,4 dichlorobenzene plume as, as Gorm mentioned. So anyway, uh, HGL, yeah, it was a lot of years. Uh, we were awarded the contract in 2006 from the Corps of Engineers Omaha district to uh, implement the interim remedy that was in the interim rod in 2006. So. Again, coupling of remedies had two elements. Uh, one was a pump and treat system to hydraulically control the more concentrated, more contaminated part of the plume. We, we dug a 225-foot-long recovery trench keyed into the aquitard at about 30 feet down. That's the pump and treat building. Uh, so that was one element of the remedy, hydraulic control of the, of the source area. The other element uh, was injections uh, to... to do bioremediation. Uh, we also had to inoculate with bugs because there were no there were no DHC there to to munch on the TCE. Um, injections of of lactate, ABC, EHC with zero valent iron to uh, 
basically break down the TCE all the way down to, to ethene. Um, 21 acre TCE plume. So operated the pump and treat system for five years. Uh, we got 12 and a half million gallons of groundwater out of the ground and 90 pounds of VOCs. Remember that number when we talk about the mass removal uh, from thermal? Gormer already said it in his intro, but if you missed it, we'll, we'll, we'll say it again later. Um, so 90 pounds of VOCs, not, not a whole heck of a lot. That's about a bucket, bucket full of TCE. Uh, injections, over 2,000 points uh, we, we injected. Uh, like I said, it was, it was lactate and, and, and sugar water and oil and then more oil than, than lactate and basically um, cleaned up the whole plume. Uh, we took a 21 acre TCE plume and got it down to less than three acres. So we achieved MCLs throughout the entire area that the pump and treat system didn't have hydraulic control over, uh, including all of the residential area. So that was a huge success. And um, so the pump and treat only took out 90 pounds. Do you have any idea how much was degraded or, or is that just unknown? Um, most of it was TCE. Yeah. So mo most of it was TCE. We, we had, you know, we had a lot of cysts. We didn't have a lot of vinyl chloride uh, generated at this site. And I think in part because we had residual D-napple in the clay that was pretty much 100% TCE. So we didn't have a lot of breakdown. And there had been an absence of, of DHC bacteria to break it down anyway. We had, we had to add that. Um, All right. So yeah, tremendous success. So by 2015, uh, like I said, we reduced the plume down to less than three acres, MCLs throughout the entire residential area. Uh, we had the source area under hydraulic control. But of course, what we're noticing is now with the pump and treat system, you know, we're pretty asymptotic, really diminishing returns in, in, in what we're getting there. Um, and, and someone really smart at EPA once said to me, uh, you know, remedy implementation is the final stage of, of, of site characterization. And, and what does that mean? You know, sources really reveal themselves as, as your remedy progresses. So what we saw here at Brandywine was when we would have the pump and treat system down for you know a month for maintenance, we'd start observing rebound in a lot of wells. And, and that gave us a clue on what was going on, that we had a potential uh, back diffusion problem here. So, so we use some really cool tools uh, that, that most, most folks are familiar with. We use MIP, uh, we use passive flux meters, and we basically gridded the site uh, to define the source area. So we're able to draw a box around the source area. And that's the source that's in the Calvert formation, in the clay. You've got the stuff back diffusing off the clay, and it's in the groundwater further down gradient. So what, what's bad about this is if you let this keep going, what's in the groundwater further down gradient, that mass can actually load back into the clay down gradient and, and, and exacerbate your, your problem. We use passive flux meters and what they do uh, without getting lost in that, they, they, you can calculate the rate of diffusive flux of your source into groundwater. Uh, the MIP allowed us with some you know, real, real soil samples, real analysis to, to do a rudimentary mass estimate. And when you couple that with the rate of diffusive flux, you know, we arrived at it's gonna take over a hundred years if it's linear to deplete the source and we, and we know it's not linear. So that, that over 100 years 
basically uh, tells you you need to get a, a, an aggressive source area remediation technology in there to, to take care of it. So that was that was quick. That was a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Lauren, I know you were the project manager at the time for TRS, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the, the ERH implementation and the challenging challenging conditions you were facing? Yeah, definitely. So Ken, you know, Ken was key in identifying the target treatment area for us and that depth. Without that information, we really couldn't get started. So the outcome of that, um, that high resolution site characterization was really used by TRS to, to um, target an area that ended up being about a little bit less than, than an acre. And all that work was done you know, with support from the Air Force and contracting ultimately under a performance-based remediation contract with the Corps. Yeah, shout, shout out to the Omaha District Corps and, and the Air Force for their, their steadfast support and, and confidence, you know, in this project from, from, from day one, so. Yeah, so the, the trichloroethane and 1,4-dichlorobenzene that we had mentioned previously, now, now we've got an outline. Two, I think, prominent site features that, that jump out to me, it's the CSX railroad tracks and then the county roadway. Um, so those were really key features that definitely added to the complexity that we needed to design around. But what that heating system looked like conceptually, if you could, Ken had us targeting residual denapple in that calvert formation, that deep clay. So we were targeting, we, we needed to ensure heating of that target clay, but also throughout the water column underneath those railroad tracks. Um, to ensure that, that we could collect steam from what very little Veda zone existed at the site. We ended up using two different electrodes that were deployed as part of our, our heating system. And so those electrodes, that heating system was designed around a lot of site features, um, which again, just added to the complexity. Things were divided by the tracks and in, in the middle. Um, we were working, you know, both within the CSX right of way, but also the county right of way. It literally spit, split the site in two. So, you know, Ken and I had to work within two different equipment compounds. That meant tools on either side of the tracks, heavy equipment on both sides of the tracks. From a, a construction point of view, um, it definitely required a, a lot of pre-planning. Um, but also, you know, utility power and making sure that we had access to the grid um, on both sides of the tracks was also something that we needed to design around. There were restrictions with regards to overhead um, lines that were present at the site. You know, what's pretty common alongside these railroad tracks is high voltage utility lines. So we were working within, you know, those conditions as well. Um, lots of site work and planning went into the flooding conditions that existed at the site, although not designated as a, a wetland, you know, we, we really had to think about where we placed the equipment, especially between the railroad tracks, which was, again, very prone to, to flooding, literally water flowing over railroad tracks at, at time during construction. So lots of different features to design around. <clears throat> 
mentioned two different types of electrodes. I'd love to hear more about those and, and why, why two different types? Um, so two different electrodes, right? So we love sheet pile electrodes. Uh, we actually rate our, our ERH sites on sheet pile goodness as part of our early modeling that we do. Um, and really why we, we needed to use two different kinds um, was because of the overhead restrictions. It prevented us from using sheet pile electrodes across the whole site. So when we were working under and around the high voltage power lines, we were doing a more typical board electrode. Um, so with regards to power delivery and comparing the two, we can deliver twice as much power to the subsurface using sheet pile electrodes in comparison to a traditional board electrode. So what you see there in the site plan is we've got two board electrodes that are actually spaced really close together anytime we weren't able to use a sheet pile electrode. So those two board electrodes were actually on the same phase. They were working together to try to deliver as much power as a nearby sheet pile electrode. What kind of access requirements were you guys facing doing this? Um, and can we <laughs> Best one for answering that one. Yeah, we can. I, I can tackle that one. Um, at, at the risk of sounding cliche, you, you know, it's communication first, first and foremost. Um, there's a lot of early engagement with with CSX with with the railroad. We brought them in at the feasibility study stage and basically, you know, kind of sat around a table and said, "All right, what's going to work for you guys? What's not? What's not going to work for you? For you guys?" Um, you also have to understand when working with the railroad, you, you have to work with multiple entities and it, and it sort of starts with real estate uh, and then you're working with environmental and then you're also working with engineering from, from an operational standpoint. So really understanding that, that there's multiple entities you, you, need to, you need to interact with. But you know, kind of at the end of the day, what's common in, in, in railroad corridors, utility corridors, right? So, so CSX has all kinds of, as do other railroads, they have all kinds of plans and specifications for pipeline installation, for, for sheet pile installation. You know, they're, they're right on the website. And, and what we're doing here is not much different than, than those things, right? It's a, it, it's a construction project at the end of the day. So I don't know, Lauren, yeah, as Ken mentioned, these are specifications that are readily available, right? We knew that we couldn't just lay our infrastructure over the tracks and, you know, nor could we put it over in some kind of clearance or crossing. Um, so if you can't go over, you've got to go under, essentially, and that's, that's what we did here. We installed conduits literally underneath the railroad tracks. It, four different conduits in the end. One stretched all the way from one side of the tracks to the other, and that gave us power on the other side of the tracks. And then we had three going from the center to one side. And that was really to help, you know, with the operating electrodes and the equipment vapor recovery efforts that were happening in between the tracks. So when you can't go over, you gotta go under. <laughs> but don't you think, Ken, a, a big key, um, you know, aspect for CSX was monitoring in the end. Yeah, monitoring in the end. You know, I, I just, I just before we get to monitoring, yeah, that is key, and 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 I think that that's where we get sort of into the 
the, the meat of this. You know, the other thing, just to circle back, a lot of safety requirements uh, and training needed. You need, you need, you know, roadway worker training that that's mandatory for working within the railroad. I think the other thing I wanted to add is that, is that the railroad was actually pretty excited about this project. Um, you know, we've been going on site for years. We've been doing MIP. We've been putting in wells. We've been we've been sampling, and um, you know, thermal to them represented the end of, of those incursions because I think the railroad understood the finality of thermal versus, let's say, ISCO, which was contemplated, which again would have been several years of you know injections, reinjections. Uh, they they were pretty excited about about the ERH remedy. Very good. Well, let, let's get to it to the uh, the track monitoring. Essentially, I'm very curious to know whether you know you derailed any trains, for instance, because <laughs> no, that didn't happen. <laughs> you cooking. You make, us, you make us giggle, but that's like literally what nightmares were at at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, we needed to have the data to back it up, right? Um, we deployed an automated motorized total station is what it's called. It has survey prisms all over the site, um, all over the railroad tracks. They're located about 10 feet on each rail. So there's four different rails at, at this site. Um, and there was this station, this device that was actually mounted onto the signal you're seeing in the photograph on the bottom right hand side and that scanning station scans the horizon every few hours and collected elevation changes at each and every one of those survey prisms that was mounted onto the rails. Um, so data was collected, sent to a cloud, real-time access was given to project team members and alerts you know were also sent um, in order for us to ensure that we were staying well below, below the threshold. Ken mentioned that CSX has rules and specifications. I'm sure it comes as no surprise that they also have threshold limits. They know that their tracks can take a certain amount of movement and, they, and we need to ensure that we're staying under the allowable movement, right? Um, it, it's, it, basically for this one scenario, their limit's three inches. And you know, my goal, Ken's goal, was to monitor and ensure we didn't even get close to their limit. Um, so we, we set up various different notification levels and actions that had to occur, um, which included, you know, physical inspection of the site if needed. Uh, one thing I want to note is, you know, data transparency was really key during this phase of the project, especially operations. So setting up alerts, monitoring alerts that included CSX receiving notifications if we got to any of these action levels. That was so key at the time. Um, but what this meant in the end is like so much data was collected. <laughs> Overwhelming amounts of data was collected. <laughs> Ultimately in the end, massive amounts of data collected both during construction and operations. We did see movement that was very reflective of this kind of daily cycle, it all ended up being associated with ambient temperature changes well below the threshold limit that CSX had for us and, and um, even below the notification levels that we set for ourselves. So that, that movement from, 
from top to bottom or peak to valley, that's like two and a half millimeters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, less than a quarter yeah. of an inch. Yeah. 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 Okay, good. So no derailment of, of trains. Stop saying that, please. No, and we, slept, <laughs> we, we after a while, we, we slept better uh, yeah. <laughs> at night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Um, can real quick, uh, can you repeat to us what the what the remediation goals were and, and what a successful successful outcome of the remedy would look like? Right. So so the rod, the final rod, this was the final rod, um, was basically we didn't have a number in there, but it was reduce the mass of TCE and dichlorobenzene such that it would not continue to back diffuse and, and impact groundwater. Right. So that that's the plain and simple RIO. And of course, part and parcel to that is, is do no harm. Right. Do no harm to the tracks, do no harm to the road, et cetera. Um, but, you know, we, we deal in a real world of contracts. So so contracts like likes to put numbers to things. Right. So the number was actually MCLs in groundwater for TCE and one for dichlorobenzene. So, you know, in hindsight, that that seems almost insane to take a site with residual TCE DNAPL to to MCLs, but okay, so yeah, we we can do that. You know, fingers crossed behind behind our back. We will certainly. So and it's a performance based contract, so so you're getting paid for that performance. So um, we got there, and and you know we we boiled the heck out of the site, right? Um, and and slowly but surely, MCLs there, MCLs there, MCLs there, until we had no more groundwater because we had boiled the site for so long and depressed the water table. Uh, consequently, all we had in our wells were, was steam. Uh, so, so this is a problem, as you, as you might imagine. So what we had to do was really go to other, I'll say more traditional ways or, or typical ways of defining success you know, with a thermal treatment remedy. And, and Lauren, maybe you can go through, through some of those, the multiple lines of evidence that we used. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, in in some of those trickier areas, as Ken described, where we weren't able to collect the representative groundwater samples that we had originally set out to, to collect, um, you know, we relied, we ended up relying on various different lines of evidence. Um, the first metrics was, was temperature. We had been boiling at this site for over four months. Um, you know, that, that's a data point that became really important as we were trying to figure out how we, had we reached conditions with TCE and 1,4-dichlorobenzene that we could expect if, if we had access to representative groundwater samples that we were at or near the, the MCL. Um, so we relied on temperature data. We also evaluated the mass removal rates and overall cumulative mass removed. At this site, overall, um, we were able to achieve 99.9% .9 reduction of, of TCE. And of course, the, the fun one, 1,4-dichlorobenzene, um, some before and after data from, from <clears throat> that particular contaminant shows, um, in addition, we achieved MCLs for 1,4-dichlorobenzene. So right, of this... That's that's oh, the sorry. fun one because the the boiling point's higher, right, than than yeah. TCE. Yeah. So that, that's what that's what makes one four dichlorobenzene a little a little more challenging, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. 
So we did it without the derailment that Gorm keeps on talking about. <laughs> exciting, you know, data point too, I think, is, is we were not damaging to the railroad tracks during remedy implementation, despite all the boiling off of groundwater that we saw at the site. Yep. Yeah. To, to get this type of reduction from one four dichlorobenzene, you have to you have to boil a lot of a large fraction of the pore volume, right? At least according to laboratory studies and things I've been involved in, and something like 30, 40% of the pore volume you need to turn into steam that then migrates out in order to reduce 1,4 dCb this this much. So, and the fact that there wasn't water in the in the monitoring wells to sample in some of them, it, it does show that, you know, we somewhat desaturated a lot of the site. And it's, it's nice to see then that there wasn't any subsidence caused by that. Because yeah. we, we heated it to boiling and we pulled vacuum and, and, and pulled in oxygen via atmospheric air, right? So we, we created conditions that if there had been a lot of organic matter, there could probably have been some oxidation, but but that wasn't the case here. That, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. Ken and I were sleeping better at night. As yes, <laughs> for sure. So it was a very, very uh, phenomenal outcome.